Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about and breaking down episode five of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, it's important to note, I think, just uh, right off the bat, that this movie follows uh, not only three years you know, in production, it came out in 1980 versus Star Wars, the original Star Wars 1977, but three years of in continuity, time has passed as well. So a lot of things have changed, which is some stuff I really want to talk about uh, as we get into this. Uh, but first off, we're going to start with cinematography, uh, like we always do. And Matt, what did you have anything in cinematography that, that jumped out to you that you'd like to, to start with? So some of what stood out to me, we have some of those wide angle shots, uh, especially on Hoth. Uh, we get a few on Dagobah as well. And it's it's something that feels very Star Warsy to me. And I think The Force Awakens and J.J. Abrams do a really good job with that as well. You know, you have these kind of whole world environments in Star Wars. And a lot of the characters in a lot of the story takes place when these characters are in a very lonely spot. Thinking of Rey, uh, thinking of of Luke and, and Han out on Hoth. Those are very isolated positions uh, for the characters. And that cinematography, just emphasizing that a little bit, uh, I really appreciate. I think we also get some first-person shots from the AT-AT Walker, which I don't believe we see in the original Star Wars film, any true first-person perspective from the camera. I guess maybe from Luke's binoculars. Yeah, a little bit in the trench run, too. But it's, oh, yeah. it's used it's used a lot more in this one, too. I had some things about, you see uh, out of Luke's X-Wing again when he's crashing into the swamp in, in Dagobah. The other thing was, you know, one of my favorite scenes because of some of the, the dialogue is when Han is flying into the asteroid belt. And we kind of have a direct analog from Solo. And so I was kind of looking at the camera work, and I think... The acting is a little underbaked uh, in that particular scene when Han and Chewie are flying uh, compared to Solo. I, I kind of did a quick comparison between the two in the the editing, uh, the shot composition feels just a little more dynamic in Solo when um, they're you can tell in Solo they're really fighting the controls you know, coming back and forth, trying to weave in between the asteroids. And it looks just a little bit like they're sitting there in Empire Strikes Back. And, it, you know, it's it's just, it, it's a different kind of, of camera work that we see and, and uh, you know, a little bit different acting uh, emphasis in Empire Strikes Back. But that is one thing that I thought was interesting because we have that direct comparison between the two. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I You know, I thought... Um that in a lot of ways the cinematography took some took some steps forward um, from from a new hope in this film. Um, I, I started uh, noticing right away with the Super Star Destroyer scene. The first time we see Vader's Super Star Destroyer, which looked almost like um, a takeoff on the the iconic scene from the opening of A New Hope a little bit, where you don't quite see it uh, because it's so huge. And I love how it's just the shadow that it's casting over the regular size Star Destroyers. Uh, you know, we talked about scale last episode too, and like there it is again. You know, it's just this massive thing, and I don't remember as a kid even grasping how big that is. But now I look at that and like it's literally hundreds of times bigger than the other ones, almost comically so. Uh, so much bigger. It's kind of like yes, this movie will be bigger and badder than the last one. That's kind of 
uh, the thing that I took from that. Um, there's more camera move, just dynamic camera movement in this movie, I thought. You know, you mentioned the the asteroid field. I thought that's pretty immersive. You see uh, the camera kind of moves with the, with the ships a little bit. Uh, and But it even starts with this this big, long tracking and establishing shot of, of Hoth, and it zooms in on Luke. It's a really kind of dynamic shot. And I love how, and we'll talk about music in a few minutes, but I love how you, you almost don't even know who that is because he's all swaddled up with, with stuff, and then his theme comes in like, hey, who's that? Oh, that's Luke. And it just let us know. Um, that even though things are different, there are still some familiar things here. And then uh, one other thing that I noticed that was kind of interesting that I had seen a hundred times but I hadn't really made note of it was that there's a really good Dutch angle uh, in the Falcon when they're attached to the Star Destroyer. And it's really prevalent when the scene where uh, Leia and Han are discussing where they're going to go next before they decide to go to Bespin. But like, hey, it's at a 45 degree angle. I've never really paid attention to that. But of course they would be because they're kind of hanging upside down. The only thing I would add is there's some very simple but I think effective color work on Bespin especially when you have obviously the two lightsaber colors, uh, but also just kind of the orangish-reddish light uh, from a lot of the background scenery on Bespin kind of adds that uh, feel of hostility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that shot of, of Vader and Luke in silhouette, right? I think I mean, that's an iconic shot. Um, it's hard not to say the word iconic with this because it is, you know, it's been parodied and it's been, it's an influence on so many films, but that shot, you just see that's, that's empire kind of in a nutshell, right? That, that, that duel of those two characters and you don't even need to see them entirely. You just see the outlines. So how about sound? What, what were some things that stood out to you? So, you know, with, a, there's some new special effects in this one that I, that I love that I've always loved. And uh, sometimes it's hard to pull out sound effects, but for this one, like the tauntauns, the way the like the the way they vocalize, has always been something that I've enjoyed and and, and thought that felt organic, it felt real, and kind of added to them, even though they're clearly fake. You know, the the stop motion. I remember was one thing that I thought for sure that would be fixed when they did special editions and any future editions, but now nah, it's still there. They they still look you know like Jason and the Argonauts, but they sound real, and the close ups they look real enough where you buy in. Uh, but I think the biggest sound for me that's new is uh, the adats, which I pronounce it adat. And so I was going to ask you if you pronounce it adat or at. Okay, see there you go. <laughs> and I wonder if this is the thing I've heard with too that this might be uh, a generational thing because people my age grew up with the um, the commercial where oh. the, the kids would say, "Oh, this is an adat or whatever." So because it's never pronounced in the films, but it's a uh, yeah, it's an ADAT, and yet it's an ATSD. You don't ask me why. We just changed the pronunciation. <laughs> so, what about you? What about for for sound? Well, first thing, uh, the score is fantastic, and and again, there is light motif everywhere, and I think there's a really good light light motif with with Leia and Han. Uh, I really enjoy that, and and I think what you said, how it feels, the the sound design feels organic, they feel real. I think is the biggest compliment that I could pay. Uh, to the the movie and really the original Star Wars trilogy as a whole has a uh, an amazing sound design and, and sound effect design where this galaxy feels so much more real because of that sound. For me, the one that stood out was uh, the sound of the Falcon not working. It gets established early in the film on Hoth as they're working on it, and it's used throughout the rest of the movie as a callback. And as kind of a shorthand reference for the audience to know, hey, the Falcon's not working, something's wrong. 
and I and I just thought that was a really clever use of a very simple sound effect. But when you hear it, you understand he, you know, this is what this sound effect means. And so that's kind of that cinematic language uh, that we talk about where the creators of the movie are using cues almost to trigger a response in the audience. Yeah, that's great. And that, that shows up in Solo too, right? That that same sound, we hear it again, I think. I don't know. You might be At right, one point, I'm not sure. I think right before they inject the oh um, the coaxium. You might be right. I'd, I'll I, have I to check so. that. Because it is, you know, it is a sound that that just gets in your ear and, and stays there. Because it, it is that effective, and you, you know what that means. You, I can I can picture it right now as you say that, that what what that sound is. It's a great shorthand. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about leitmotif. Um, I guess I skipped ahead a little bit. Uh, the Imperial March is the new leitmotif we get in this film, which has completely replaced the the earlier earlier films um, Imperial motif, and it's incredibly pervasive. It's played countless times. I think. Uh, David Collins, I think, has said it's like 40 times, at least, uh, you know, repeat, um, even a small uh, quotation of it. And I just thought, you know, that's, it's pervasive, like the Empire's presence. Like, the Empire is always there. No matter where they go, uh, the rebels, they're always being pursued. They're one step behind. And that's kind of the feeling I get. And you even have that, like, when Vader comes in uh, to the cave um, after the Millennium Falcon on Hoth. Like, it, as soon as he walks in, there it is. You know, it wasn't there, and now he's there, and so it's right there. Um, so that's the most prevalent one. But what I thought was really interesting in this one was a couple of different things. Um, you mentioned a Han and Leia's theme, which again, kudos to David Collins for pointing out that it actually is like an evolved version of Leia's theme. Like the ending of it's different, and that's genius. Um, but what I thought was really cool that I didn't notice before is that Luke's theme is played a lot more in this film in lots of different ways. And so, like in the first film, the original film, like it's the main title, and we're like, yeah, we get that. That's we heard it over the credits or over the crawl. Um, but it seems like that was the main title in that film. It's really become Luke's theme in this film because you hear it in lots of different ways. Um, some kind of slow, sad versions of it when Luke fails, uh, especially on Dagobah. You hear it in lots of different ways. So, like, it kind of lets you know how Luke's doing. Uh, you hear it when he's returning to to Bestman too. There's like it's like a hopeful version of it, but lots of different uh, iterations of it in this film that I had never really paid attention to. Um, and then my other uh, favorite light motif in this one is Yoda's theme, especially when he's raising the uh, the X-wing out of the swamp. I think that's probably like the most memorable time that he uses it. But I think it's also cool that you hear that um, on Cloud City when Yoda's not there. And I don't know if we've talked about this, but um, do you know it happens right after Boba Fett finds Luke and starts, they start shooting him and they're kind of playing the cat and mouse game. So I've kind of thought of it as the kind of like I told you so almost. Like that's that's a little bit, not really the best way to say it, but uh, it feels a little bit like I warned you. You shouldn't have gone, but you did. Now these are the consequences that foresaw for you and, and now you're going to have to deal with them. Because from there, it goes downhill pretty quickly. You know, talking about performance, um, I, I do have to kind of say that while watching Empire Strikes Back again, it pops into my head that this is just like a really silly movie. Like, I, I know that it gets, you know, tens and nines across the board when people rate it. And it's often 
often described as as the best Star Wars movie of the bunch. And I, I do actually happen to agree with that. Uh, we haven't talked about our Star Wars rankings uh, on air. And uh, I think the last time we talked just in person, I think I had the original as, as, as my number one. And after rewatching Empire, I think that's back up to number one for me. But it is profoundly silly. Yoda is just ridiculous. He is this old man puppet, like the, with a get off my grass attitude. Uh, you know, the Yeti, the main character is stuck on a, in a swamp with two puppets for most of the movie. Because like R2 is, is essentially a puppet. I mean, there's really not that much acting going on. And of course, Yoda. Uh, Vader randomly shows up. And like I was trying to put, you know, in the cave and I was trying to randomly like put myself in the mind of someone who was watching this for the first time in 1980. And I'd be thinking, what the hell? <laughs> How is Vader there? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like it is kind of all over the place. And then finally Luke throws himself into a bottomless pit. Like none of that I would have expected. And the space worm, I don't know if I mentioned that. The space worm is weird too. And and so, you know, this is just this is just a silly movie. And I I, I love it. I adore it. And and the reason I bring this up now is because I think it's pretty extraordinary how Mark Hamill acts for like a huge chunk of the movie. Uh, with nothing but a rubber puppet and a metal droid. And he sells it really well. And I think, you know, I, I think in one of the previous episodes we had, I mentioned that I thought Hamill's performance in The Last Jedi was the best performance he's had. And I still hold by that. But I think this is giving it a run for its money because I think it's really hard to act well against kind of nothing else. No, I, I totally agree. And uh, is, you know, as you're talking about for audiences in, in 1980 to have seen this and and what they would have thought, and I have two thoughts about that. And uh, I've read that Empire did not get the best reviews upon its initial release and that it has, over time, has become as respected as it has. That's, a, that's very much evolved. It's aged and, well. And so, yeah, it's aged very well, and people have kind of reassessed uh, its value and and the filmmaking and and the story and the story beats and things, and so that's interesting. That yeah, there probably was a lot of people that are like, what is this? They really wanted Star Wars: A New Hope Part Two. They wanted that exact feeling, right? And this is very much not that. And it is, you know, some people have said too, it is the most serious, but also the most funny Star Wars movie because there are some incredible moments of levity, like Yoda hitting R two with a stick, and just being total goofball. Which is great when you show this to kids. Like it's really it's two things that get the kids finally invested in Star Wars. It's Yoda and the Han and Leia romance, which happens almost back to back. So like, okay, I, I can find either one of those things or one of those two things or both that I can be invested in. But you talk about the cave, and uh, I was gonna save this, but now's a good time, isn't any. I saw the movie in nineteen eighty. I was four. So try and have a four year old understand when Vader shows up. And not so much when Vader shows up there, but when Vader shows up later, because isn't Vader dead? Now I'm fully confused. And what's going on with the head inside the <laughs> inside the helmet? There's a lot going on there. And every time I watch it, I get a little bit more out of it. You know, and and initially you're watching that and you go, well, that's foreshadowing for Luke, right? Potential foreshadowing. And then you put in the whole aspect of his parentage, and now it's got a whole other subtext there as well. But uh 
Yeah, back back to performance though. I, I just want to talk about this real fast. That I wanted to mention. This is why I wanted to mention that it was three years later because one thing that I always am fascinated by is how much the relationships have evolved since the last film. Clearly, some time has evolved, and this is why one of the things I think that the uh, the sequel trilogy kind of suffers from is that it feels the whole thing feels kind of rushed because it happens. You know, Last Jedi, as much as I love it, happens ten minutes after Force Awakens. There's no time for characters to have evolved they have to evolve in that film and then you get to rise of skywalker and i think it's set a year after but again there's all these things that could have evolved there's these stories in there that we get kind of referenced to in the original trilogy we have there's the the bounty hunter we ran into in ord mandel like there's a story there right there's a reason that han now goes back after luke risking his own life like, he would not have done that in the previous movie. And they're very much peers in this movie. Whereas in the last movie, it was very much like, hey, kid, like, I'm 10 years older than you. You're, you're just this little snot-nosed punk. And now we're equals. Plus, you have the whole Han and Leia quasi-romance thing at the beginning. Like, they have been clearly doing this dance for a while. Yeah. And uh, to add on to that, I think the, the romance between Han and Leia is hands down the best romance in any Star Wars film. And in my opinion, one of the best in movies. I mean, it's so perfectly acted. And you believe every moment that on some level, they hate each other. And on another level, they completely love each other. And it's hard to mix those two. And they're trying to, trying not to. And it's this back and forth tug of war. And you don't know what's going to happen. And... I just love the intimacy of the moment when they finally kiss because there's, you know, there's this buildup through the movie. There's this tension between them uh, as, as the movie continues. Uh, but it, it, it's intimate without being explicit and, and there's nothing really, I mean, it, it's a pretty innocent kiss by most standards today too, but it's, it's an incredible romantic moment. And I think that, it's some incredible character work and writing and acting that kind of make that moment work as well as it does. No, I, I agree. I, that was one thing that I, I tried to pay really close attention to was, was that relationship and to watch the body language and facial expressions and um, yeah, the just ripping on each other left and right. I'm like, even Han, who's clearly the pursuer at the beginning is making fun of her. Yes, your highnessness and all those things and being way over the top. Um, you could use a good kiss. All these things where he's kind of battering back and forth between being kind of uh, chivalrous but also kind of a jerk. You know, just kind of playing it both ways. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll try a little bit of this. And yeah, and then that moment happens and the music swells and it's beautiful. And then 3PO comes in yeah. <laughs> and punctures it. And it's just like, it's so perfect. The mu- <laughs> It's such a well-balanced. And that just adds to the realism of it too because it's yeah, like, it you does. know, <laughs> These romantic moments don't really happen in real life. And so especially when you have a protocol droid right around the corner, um, just popping in and it's clueless about sarcasm. And I, um, and I do love the banter. I mean, you yeah. know, would it help if I got out and pushed? I mean, there's... Oh my gosh. <laughs> there are... It might. <laughs> there are some great, great lines. I am not a committee. And, you know, there's this kind of... <laughs> just yeah. it, it just feels such like sincere... Uh, banter between these two people. The chemistry is off the charts. 
Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the why you stuck up half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. And then his response is, who's scruffy looking? Yep. <laughs> which is hilarious. It's like, she insulted you like four times and you're upset about that's how the one you thing. Look, <laughs> which is so great. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I was also this time noticing just how much um, when they get to Cloud City and Lando comes out and starts flirting with her and Han gets annoyed and you just watch Leia. She's almost laughing at how much it's annoying Han. And it's not like she's like wants him to be in pain or anything like that. She's just like, yeah, how's it feel? Yeah. Well, and also she she does not trust Lando at all. No. Period. And 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 I think that comes off beautifully well. Where Han, as annoyed as he might be, trusts Lando. And Leia does not. Right. And you get that. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why the movie is so good is that they have these little moments of tension between the characters where you don't know who to believe. Like, is Han right? Is Lando trustworthy? Is Leia right? Because you get that sense that she doesn't trust him. And so you, you, you're left with this question of who who's who's really trustworthy? And you, you don't know. Not until, you know, as the movie progresses. Right. And then I, I'm just thinking about, you know, structurally with this movie, we have this big giant battle at the beginning. And then almost the entire rest of the movie is these character beats. Like the the rest of the movie is fairly slow as far as action goes. You have, but you can pause and just sit, and you can have a conversation for five minutes, and you know get to see who these characters are and see them in different situations. You know that was one thing I had too is that the droids are separated through this entire movie, which that hasn't happened. But more importantly, Han, Luke, and Leia have hardly any time together. Like I think yeah. they have they only have the one scene. Yeah, on Hoth. Yeah, that's the only scene where all three of them are together, and so. Um, it's really interesting to say, oh, well, let's just see how these people play over here. Let's see how this, these characters bounce off without that other element. Well, and that's precisely what I was, you know, talking about where it's, when you think about it, divorced from the actual movie, it's kind of, it, it's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of silly. We're going to have the main character just scoot off into some swamp for half the film. Because <laughs> at least with with Han and Leia, you could argue that they're being chased. And so it's a it's a chase, you know, scene where the evil empire and, and Vader are chasing them. And so that is, you know, action. And yeah, there are huge moments where they stop and they talk. And, you know, it, it's very, in my opinion, I think it's very well balanced and it, and it works. But I think that if you just saw a, like a one sentence description of of like what Luke is doing, you'd be like, that sounds boring. And I think it comes back to kind of the magical quality of the script in Yoda and just how good it is and how he comes off as this crazy old person and then he just flips a switch. Obi-Wan comes in as a ghost and and he's this this teacher who's who's spouting off wisdom about the force and then of course the romance with han and leia and, and it just works so well yeah it's definitely better than the sum of its parts yes you know it's on paper it's it's one thing in in, in on film it's something else uh, you mentioned yoda and uh, this is something i don't know if we've, we've, we've talked about this before but i actually had a student one time who did not know who yoda was and so when he revealed himself to Luke, she was genuinely surprised, which was amazing. Uh, and again, we talked about in 1980 when people saw this film because the Yoda action figure didn't come out until after the movie came out. 
and he wasn't in any of the trailers of the marketing. So that was a genuine surprise and a switch. We, we had no idea who that was going to be. So um, again, that's just genius storytelling that on paper, yeah, that's one thing, but he's so annoying. He's so convincing as this little imp that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big reveal when he turns out to be this Jedi master. Well, and, and just that phrase, Jedi master, you think of Obi-Wan Kenobi, this tall statuesque regal almost figure. And then you've got the little imp who you would not imagine at first blush to be a Jedi master. That's not what you would imagine him to be. And you, and we, the audience fall into the same trap that Luke does. And I think that, again, is part of the brilliance of the script is when you can put the audience's emotions and feelings and reactions and they kind of mirror one of the characters, I think that is a recipe for connection. And so despite all the silliness, there is this, there's such a strong narrative core to the story. And I think that is why people have, have come to love it over time is because really deep down, what they care about is they can connect to the characters. Yeah, I agree. So there was a couple of uh, Vader things that I wanted to talk about. Specifically, the first one, uh, the conversation with Sheev, because I just like saying Sheev. And this is one that I think as, you know, there, there's a new version that's in the, the special editions, right? We get Ian McDermott's in there now versus uh, Clive Revel. Uh, and then you have, there's more dialogue now where he mentions, he actually mentions Anakin Skywalker, which is, you know, at now it's the first time, well, first time in the original trilogy we heard the mm -hmm. name previously. It had only been in Return of the Jedi. But that whole conversation about uh, we could turn him and bring him to our side. I've always thought it's fascinating, but even more so after the prequels and we've reintroduced the rule of two. And that's one thing that I want to, you know, I want to talk about a little bit. So you, we've talked about this before, right? No, what's actually going on in that scene? I'm not sure if we have or not. Uh, I'm pretty sure we have, but enlighten me. So the way I read the scene is that essentially you have Palpatine saying, let's bring Luke to our side and, he's going to kill you and then it would be me and Luke and Vader is saying yes let's have Luke join us and then it'll be me and Luke and then we'll kill you because there can only be two of us you know they they're saying one thing but the subtext is something entirely different it's a sinister subtext to this one and uh, I just always found that really interesting that's the way I read it anyway no I I, I think uh, we have talked about it before and I definitely read it the same way too and I think that's backed up by by the scene later where, where Vader reveals that he's Luke's dad, which I mean to talk about iconic lines, I mean that's probably the most the most of them. No, I am your father. And then you join me and we can overthrow the Emperor and all of those things. Then it really becomes, yeah, this has been his plan. This is Vader playing the the blood card, right? If it's gonna be one of us, it should be your dad that you go with. So um the last thing that I kind of had a note on was uh, the moment when the Falcon's trying to escape and the two dart, uh, the two or three Star Destroyers are kind of coming together and there's the like collision alarm that sounds and I think they kind of collide. And the acting, uh, it just made me laugh because it reminded me of the old Star Trek where, <laughs> where it's like the director's like, okay, everybody lean to the left. 
and then everyone leans to the left. It was exactly that. And, you know, I find it funny and, you know, it, it's an quote unquote older film. And so I'm, I'm willing to forgive, forgive that. I just thought it was uh, funny that you have that little, I doubt it was a homage to Star Trek, uh, but I, it felt like it, it feels like it now. Yeah, I won't be able to get that out of my head now every time I see that. Because I was going to mention earlier, like, I like this shot because it has, like, the extreme low angle looking up so you can kind of see the triangles almost intersect and see exactly how close they are, which is great. But yeah. now I'm just going to think about Star Trek and William Shatner throwing himself <laughs> yeah. side to yeah. side. Yeah, okay. that's, you know? that's where that's where Shatner got his chops. He's Method acting. <laughs> imperial, imperial actor, imperial officer on the Star Destroyer, yeah. So anything else with performance other than I love you, I know, because I have to mention that. I mean, we, we have to talk about that. I, I mean, we know that's, you know, we've heard now that that's improvised on the spot, which is genius. Uh, and that always gets a big laugh uh, whenever I show that film. And, and some kids take it differently. Some take it really? as like a, a burn against Leia. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> that's just who he is. Yeah, and then of course we get that great callback in, uh, in Return of the Jedi. So, and I, I, and when I do, I, I guess I do see some kids that oh, that's burned. Like, no, you just wait; it'll, it'll turn around. That's, that's were, not what that is. You were thinking Rise of the Skywalker, right? No, no. In uh, in Return of the Jedi, when uh, when Leia gets shot, um, outside the bunker. Oh, they're trying to hot right, wire right, Because right. I was thinking uh, Ben's redemption in. Well, that uh, where he says, <laughs> well, "I was going to say because that's that's the best part of Rise of Skywalker, and in my that's my favorite scene from it is is the the Force vision of of Han and and Ben kind of redeeming himself and talking to his father, right, and, and saying like, "I'm sorry," and and Han says, "I know," meaning both, "I right. know you're sorry," and "I love you," and yeah, that, there's that that's kind of beautiful. Dual, there's that kind of dual meaning there. And that that to me is is a beautiful moment of of writing that, that brings some subtext from Empire Strikes Back. There you go. See, you didn't have to look too hard to find some good in Rise of Skywalker. You found I mean, one. it's not hard when it's the only shining star in the movie. So <laughs> All right, let's uh let's move on to to second I got, in design. I got I got one more thing. Oh, let's do that. Because Luke, when he yeah. gets his hand cut off and finds out that Vader is his dad. Yeah. There's, there's one moment, because we've both shown this film to students before, and there's one moment when students laugh every single time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. And that's that's the moment when Luke kind of, you know, scrunches his face and, and screams no every time. Every single time kids laugh. Why do you think that is, Craig? I think they they find that melodramatic. I think they think that Hamill is overacting. That's what I think they think. Yeah, I I I, I agree, and and I, I think it is a little melodramatic. I I agree that it is it's it's extreme. I think it happens to be warranted. I typically will just say like, you just found out your dad is space Hitler. How would you react, honestly? Seriously, he cut off your hand and then he was like, yeah, I'm your dad. You would freak out. So give the man a little grace. Yeah, I, I just think it, uh, it, it's something that like I never 
expected the first time I showed it. Yeah. And I was like, why are you guys laughing? Yeah, I've never found it funny personally. I've no, never, I haven't either. But my my own kids have never laughed at it. But when I show it to students, there's always one that at least it's funny. Yeah. So I, I just think that's kind of an interesting moment, you know, because we do, we're, you know, we're trying to look at these performances, and and really, yeah. that's the one moment where I feel like it it is a little hammy on Hamill's part. Was that a pun? <laughs> that was beautiful. Of course it was. Hamily. Beautiful. Okay. Yes. Um, setting and design. I had just a couple of things. Um, we talked about the one world environments, you know, of Hoth, and it's awesome that they actually did that in, in Norway and uh, that it's so freezing. And they've talked about, I, there's lots of places that you've seen this where the shot of Luke kind of stumbling around after he gets out of the Wampa Cave, everyone is like huddled inside the hotel shooting that shot while he's the only one out there freezing. I think that's amazing. Uh, and just that the Dagobah's on a soundstage, which is amazing. Like that feels like a real environment. You have to convince me. You had a show, and I've seen, because I've seen it. That's how I know. I've seen the behind the scenes stuff that, you know, they've got floors uh, built, and they got like scaffolds. So guys like Frank Oz can be underneath doing the puppetry for, for Yoda. Uh, and you know, it's genius the way they've got it all kind of shrouded in fog and things like that. So one for me that that popped out that I hadn't noticed before, uh, and this is this is kind of a little bit of set, a little bit of prop. Um, when the Star Destroyers are going through the asteroid field, there's one moment uh, right before the Emperor calls Vader to to speak with him, and we see this asteroid just nail the Star Destroyer. And then it cuts to the inside, and you've got three Imperial officers on the the hologram, and then one of them just kind of freezes and then winks out. I, I enjoy that little that piece right there because it it's such for me it's such a clever piece of background storytelling uh, that you it, it's easy to just kind of miss or overlook, uh, but there it just adds a little richness to uh, the movie as it goes. But really, for me, um, the the setting and design, um, I think Bespin is quite interesting. Uh, the design of the tunnels and the kind of floating city itself, I think it's it's a very interesting place to have that that battle between Vader and Luke, um, and especially when Vader starts like tearing stuff off the walls and and throwing it at Luke. I got to say that the fight between Vader and Luke, the whole thing is one of my favorites. Uh, I, I think it's tremendous. The music, the the choreography of, of the fighting. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the silhouette of Vader and Luke is is pretty amazing. Uh, th- those images are just beautiful. And then, of course, the crescendo of, of Luke, you know, falling down the pit. And it's kind of a stunning turn of events because... You know, of course, we all know it now, but but back in 1980, I don't think anyone ever really expected that to happen. That that the revelation, and then Luke losing his hand, and then falling down, you know, jumping off into the bottomless pit. It, it's kind of a stunning turn of events. No, absolutely, it's it it is stunning. Um, you can see, and you can see Vader being he's the rest of the film. You know, Vader is kind of shell-shocked from this. Um, 
you could see in this scene that that's absolutely the last thing he was expecting. It's like, you're join me or die. And Luke's like, okay, I'll, I'll die. Uh, and then, you know, I had it written down um, that you have Vader's double take, which is always one of my favorite parts when this whole, you know, part of the movie, the, the recurring thing you mentioned earlier with the sound for Millennium Falcon trying to go to hyper, uh, hyperspeed. Uh, and it finally does at the end. And then you see Vader looking and then he looks away and then he looks back. And and the look on on Piet's face, which is one thing I want to talk about too. You have this like we really get to know the Imperial uh, chain of command in this film because Vader just keeps killing dudes, and yeah. now somebody else has to has to step up. High turnover and rate. The, <laughs> the turnover rate, right? And he lets him live because you know he's just had this thing with Luke. And that's the way I read it, right? He's just like, you know what? It's just one more thing at this point. But I love the fact that he promoted Piet while he's killing Ozil. That that's also one of my favorites, and and it's such a like a you know there's there's a couple moments in this film that are beautiful callbacks to the original, and the force choke from, you know, A New Hope is is a, is a very important scene because it's a demonstration of the force right after Obi Wan explains it, and so it I think it really sticks in people's minds, and then he does it again, and it just reinforces Vader's character. Yeah, I wanted to get, let's you know as good as time as any. We transition into any other character notes that we wanted to talk about. I I had um, just how much how Vader's perceived by his own men in this film. We get that great shot of him staring at the window at the beginning, and then he turns, and you can just see the guys kind of cowering down in the little pits, and like everybody is on edge when he's talking to Ozil. You can see Ozil's like kind of swallows. Yeah, you know, he's very nervous. And then he's just irritated uh, right after that. And then he like kind of takes it out on the next guy, <laughs> takes it out on Piet because Piet's like, no, I think, you know, maybe this is something we should do. Um, and then the fact that we get to see the back of Vader's head, yes. which I think was, was pretty big deal at the time because it's confirmation that he's not a robot. Yeah. Not or at least not completely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think, I think Vader, this is kind of his, uh, I, I don't want to say like true introduction, but he feels so much more dynamic in this film. And uh, he feels, I feel like there's much more character work and there <laughs> in the sense that like he kills a lot more people and he, but you know, he, he's kind of sarcastic and sardonic while he does it, yep. which adds a little bit of, of, of character to him. Han, I guess I'll say this first, the character work in this movie is fantastic. I think across the board. And I think one of the reasons why it's such a good sequel is that it builds so organically on the characters from the first movie. And I think sometimes sequels don't do that very well. But it's really fun to see Han just immediately jump on the Tauntaun to go save Luke. And you hear the guy shouting, like, you'll freeze before you hit the first marker. And Han just goes, without a, without missing a beat, then I'll see you in hell. And then it cuts away. And it's just yep. like, that's that's such a Han line. But it's also like he he cares so deeply for Luke. And you were saying that they're, they're kind of peers. And to me, it felt like an older brother where he's going he's gonna to rib on him and he's going to call him kid and things like that. But at the end of the day, he loves him and he's going to do what he can to protect him. Uh, I also think that Leia is just amazing. <laughs> uh, it, this movie really reminds me why I like Leia as a character. And it just hit me watching her in Hoth when the entire base is crumbling. We just watched the rebels being overwhelmed, just completely outmatched. 
and we see the base crumbling. We see Han running in to to try and find her. And she's at the station with like the two other rebel soldiers still giving orders, still strategically trying to save as many people as she can. And Han's like, we have to go. We're going to die here. And Leia still doesn't leave with him until she finally gives the, the command to retreat. And I was just like, how cool of a character. Like, that is so heroic. It's so full of leadership. So full of just, yeah, I would totally follow Leia. I would follow her, you know? And uh, I, I just, it, it's so wonderful that you get that that sense. The last kind of small note that I had is that I feel like this is the first movie where the Falcon becomes a character uh, and is more than just a ship. I, I think that for me, you know, obviously the Falcon is an iconic ship that's very well known and it plays a big part in A New Hope, but I think this one really goes into it's a character where it's it's truly a part of the experience and something would be missing if you didn't have the Falcon in Star Wars. If you just had some other random ship, it, it's not quite the same. Uh, all the little moments that Han and Leia have on there, the fact that the engines keep malfunctioning, even with Lando. And of course, that lore kind of builds from there. But for me, this is kind of the start of, of the Falcon being something more important, something bigger than just a ship. Right. And you get a couple of things, you know, from Solo that, that build into that, right? Just seeing it evolved, right? I mean, that ship has evolved as well, like as a character would do as well. And and then, of course, we have the the line where 3PO talks about, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect, which now we look at and go, yeah, that's L3 in there talking to him. And so, I mean, there is some sentience to to the Falcon as well. And it wouldn't have to be. I mean, we, even before, we didn't really necessarily think of it that way, but it does kind of feel like a character just because, like, it's stubborn, right? I mean, Han flicks the switch. It doesn't come on. He smacks it. It turns on. You know, yep. it's it's moody and it's temperamental. Yep. Uh, one thing I would really want to talk about with with characters too is I noticed this time something I'd never noticed before, which always blows me away when I see something new in a Star Wars movie, is that we have kind of two tests of things being not quite what they seem that almost happen at exactly the same time. We've talked about Luke's uh, with Yoda pretending to be this um, this little imp. That's what we were using. Uh, this mischievous little guy, uh, totally different than he actually is, his true character. Almost right after his introduction, we have the Exegorth, where we have the Falcon. Han pilots the Falcon into the space slug. And these are happening at the, like, the same time in the film where they're both, you know, all of our main characters, I should say, are all kind of like, I think this is the way things are. And they're going to find out very quickly that they're not. And I just thought that was fascinating that they put both those scenes, editing-wise, that they put them side by side like that. And I and I have to come back to Yoda. Um I I really see Empire Strikes Back as the key to understanding the last Jedi. And so part of me wants to save some of that conversation for when we talk about last Jedi, but you know, the the cave scene I think is key to understanding Luke's character. And just going through this, you know, watching this, I kept thinking, like, what is Luke's flaw? And we talked about in A New Hope, he's this kind of whiny hick from the outskirts of space. And 
he doesn't, he's kind of naive. He doesn't really know what's going on in the wider universe. And, you know, we start with Luke being a true soldier, a, a true member of the rebellion. He's this uh, well-respected pilot and part of this organization. But he's also incredibly, uh, and like Yoda says, that he's forward-looking. He's not present. He, he's not in the present moment. He's stuck in the future, uh, which is also mirrored in The Last Jedi. But when, you know, when he goes to the cave, uh, I think it's very fascinating, Yoda's line. Luke asks, what, what am I going to find? And Yoda says, only what you bring with you. And I think that's the key right there because it kind of hits on two different things. Number one, I don't think Luke trusts him. I don't think Luke believes what Yoda is saying, which also affects his ability to use the force later on. But he also brings his weapon. Like it's very clear that he, he takes his belt with his blaster and his lightsaber. And when he enters the cave and he sees Vader, what is his first response? It is violence. He ignites his lightsaber and he fights Vader. And it turns out to be himself in Vader's clothing. And there's metaphor, other metaphor wrapped up in this. But what it reminds me of is in Return of the Jedi, when he actually does face Vader uh, another time. You know, he tried fighting Vader once at the end of Empire. In Return of the Jedi, he doesn't come with violence. He comes with forgiveness. He comes with redemption. He comes with love. And ultimately, that's what wins him the day, is his belief in Vader. He heals those things uh, within himself that he experiences within the cave. His lack of belief, his, um, you know, his, his over-assurance in his, his foresight into the future, uh, and, and the fact that it's, it's non-violence that will actually win him the day. And that actually pairs perfectly. It fits like a, a puzzle piece into what he does with Ben. Because, you know, he in, in The Last Jedi, he looks into Ben's future and sees the possibility of, of, of him becoming another Vader. And what does he do? His first reaction is violence. <laughs> but we saw that in Empire. That was his first reaction. It, it's, it's that split-second reaction that he has uh, to use violence, to jump into the future, whether or not it's decided or not. He didn't believe in Ben and his ability to resist uh, you know, the, the dark side, and he also didn't believe in himself. He didn't believe in himself as a teacher and a mentor and an uncle to guide Ben. And so it's like those three things, they start an empire, they're there, and they show back up in The Last Jedi. And finally, in Last Jedi, he kind of finally closes closes on those those uh, those wounds that he has. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is that you also see that in his absence in The Force Awakens, that you have him. He reacts. He swings on like a pendulum, right? He goes to violence, then he goes a completely other way. And so clearly, with young Ben, he went. To initially to violence and then he goes back the complete other way he's like fine I will just stay completely out of it and so you talk about the mirrors between this film and that film is he had an opportunity to save Han Solo in Force Awakens he clearly has the power to have done that a lot of us were expecting him to show up on Starkiller base and start kicking butt but he doesn't and, you know and when we get to that film we'll, we'll talk more about that but there is there it is like it's and it's not I think that's the thing a lot of people have trouble with. It's like, well, he should have learned his lesson. 
Like that's not how life works. You don't just learn it once, right? This is a continual thing. He still struggles with, you know, looking at the future and wanting to control it. You know, this is a good transition into uh, the galaxy and specifically talking about force powers because we'd mentioned in the last film that, or last episode rather, that we're getting basically new force powers pretty much every every new film. And in this one, we do see uh, being able to see the future, right? And then Yoda mentions how really it's, you know, it's always in motion. It's not exactly what it what it seems like. You ne- you can't necessarily say that's exactly what's going to happen, and that's why that's dangerous. We see this echoed. I just thought of this. We see this echoed with with Kanan and Ezra in Rebels too. That there is this. Well, I can see the future. Yeah, kinda. Right. It's dangerous to rely on that. It's good to use that as a tool, but it cannot be the only you know source of information that you have. But we also have uh, the Force Ghost for the first time. And uh, I find it, well, first time, yeah, yeah, first time. Um, interesting that Kenobi is transparent at first and then more solid when he's on Dagobah. Uh, I've heard some theories about that and whether that's, it could be tied to the fact that Dagobah is like a force nexus or it could be the fact that Luke is stronger in the force and more connected to it. I tend to favor that opinion, that, that that's why he can see Ben more clearly, is that he's more in tune with what's going on. I think that the text is more um, leaning toward that and implies that a little bit more. And we see a lot more like telekinesis in this film. And there's a force jump in this one. I mentioned last time there's not, not a lot of mechanical uses of the force. There's a lot of mechanical uses of the force in this film. But I think the most interesting one is honestly, is where Luke communicates with Leia. And especially knowing now that the original plan was not to have them be brother and sister, like what was the thinking there? Was it just that Luke's so powerful he can do it? Because now we read it and you're like, well, of course they're going to connect. They're twins. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I got I got nothing to add, but that's really good. <laughs> Did you have anything for uh, technology or anything else? I had things like he's got a bionic hand we have cyborgs yeah in star wars well we had vader we, we find out that he is a cyborg we didn't really know that in the first film he could have just been a dude wearing a suit uh in the first film or a robot we don't know and now we have lobot and we have luke and um medical droids that's new uh i also wrote down um the adats because i'm going to call them adats <laughs> i don't care what you say um i mentioned earlier that the tauntauns in in stop motion don't lo- look real to me but the AT-ATs do, and they're totally both stop motion, but I, I think it totally lends itself really well because they're mechanical and they should be kind of clunky like that. Uh, that just makes sense to me. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me too. Uh, I, I think they, they look kind of fake, but I definitely think that they, they blend more seamlessly because of their mechanical nature. So just some, some final closing thoughts. Um, for me, there was just just two things uh, that I wanted to bring up. The first is something that I adore in films, which is unconventional solutions to problems. One thing that just grates on my soul is when you have movies and you have two characters who fight each other and then one wins just arbitrarily. Uh, And I I think of uh, Harry Potter and Voldemort dueling it out with their wands and you have the magical force in between them and and Harry kind of wins arbitrarily or in the rise of Skywalker when it's all of the Sith versus all of the Jedi and why does Ray win 
because she does. And it, it, it just, it's a pet peeve of mine. And this movie is full of unconventional solutions. It has, they're all over the place. And then one of the reasons I love Last Jedi is, is the unconventional solution at the end of the film. But this one, I mean, uh, the surprise with the ion cannon on Hoth, that, that I was not expecting that, you know, where it's like they're flying up there and they have the ion cannon and their goal is to basically just neutralize the empire and then slip by them. That was, that to me is kind of an interesting piece. You don't have a big battle. You bypass it entirely, and it fits with the rebel idea of them being this kind of guerrilla force. Uh, and I love the cockiness of the Empire, uh, where there it's like it's first catch of the day, and nope, just going to slide right on by. Yeah. Um, you have the tangled legs of the ATAT, uh, which I think is a wonderful, unique solution. And it kind of does a couple different things where it demonstrates the overwhelming superiority of the Empire and then allows for the Rebels to show this kind of creative solution because they don't have the firepower to actually stand up to them in a head-on battle. Um, you have the Falcon hiding on the back of the Star Destroyer and, and floating away with the trash. Like, I love that. That is so, so different and, you know, it's hard because, you know, I've seen this movie so many times, but again, I was trying to put myself in, in the mode of like, okay, watch it with fresh eyes. And, and that's such a cool way to escape. And finally jumping into the pit and Luke just letting go. And again, it's one of those things that you wouldn't expect him to do. You wouldn't expect the hero to do that. You'd expect him to fight back in some way. And no, he just kind of surrenders and it works out but it was still kind of unexpected. And then <laughs> yeah. And then the uh and then the second thought I had is just I love the thematic work of the film. And it feels if like I said at the very beginning, it feels like a silly movie but with a really good heart. And and that's what I think I love about this movie is it's got silly moments, it's got light moments. But it's also, it's just got wonderful characters and it's got these wonderful lessons that Luke is, is failing to learn, but I can connect with that. And I can recognize pieces of myself in Luke. And I think all of us on some level look up to Han and Leia and the leadership and the roguish charm and the relationship that they have where they truly care about the, each other and the people around them. Yeah, this time uh, I only have one one final thought for this one is that you know a lot of people have said this one ends on a cliffhanger, and I guess tradition by a traditional sense it does, but I never really felt like it ended on a down note as much as some people have. It feels it still ends with hope, like even the music at the end it gives you confidence that things will get better. You know, Luke is he's got a new hand. He's, he doesn't look depressed. He, he looks resolved, right? Han, or, uh, Lando's wearing Han's clothes um, and is very excited to be going. He's smiling and he's on, the, he's on the team. So they've lost somebody, but they gained an ally. And even Luke is, you know, he has already come to terms with the fact that Vader is his dad. We see that or a little bit earlier in the film where Luke's, uh, they're communicating telepathically and Luke's his father, right? And then he's like, why didn't you tell me? But he's 
already kind of moved on. He's kind of kind of grown, uh, taken in this knowledge and and is working on growing forward. So, I just thought that uh, as far as middle acts of trilogies go, this one felt like a lot more hopeful um, than a lot of them do. If you think of things like uh, Infinity War, you know, punch punch to the stomach, or even like The Dark Knight, like. Yeah, it's cool how it ends, but man, it's like, man, that stinks. And this is like, you know what? We just keep, we're resilient. Like, they're going to come back. You can tell that they're going to. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I think the very end, when we get uh, Luke and Leia standing together, looking off into the the distance, is, is more of a hopeful scene uh, that you end on. I think you have this giant cliff dive of an ending and then it just just starts to kind of peak upward a little bit right at the end so as we close we just want to say thank you so much for listening if you'd like to connect with us you can find us on twitter and facebook or you can email us at reading between reels at gmail.com and if you haven't yet please join our facebook group it's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies <laughs>